chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. I hope I've got that right for you, Andy. Great. Just as well. Um, That is on page, if I can find it, um, page 1020, 1019, the bottom of 1019 in the church Bibles. Give you a moment. And then we also have it in Spanish behind me. I will not be reading it in Spanish today, anyway. Uh, Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying, Um, were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I'm armed with water and cough sweets, so if I suddenly start having a coughing fit, all is well. I don't have COVID or anything, but a bit of a croaky one at the moment. Um, It is a real joy to be with you all today. I always love coming and sharing with you. Um, I was actually just thinking back to when I first met Dan, and um, I've known Dan, I think, for 18, 19 years, and some of you may know that Dan used to be a teacher, um, and actually, would want to really just affirm Dan as your leader. Um, there's, it's not just going to accidentally slid into being a church pastor. There's been a real journey that I've seen. And so I want to massively just commend him to you. He's a really good guy. But when I first met Dan, um, I began doing schools work, working in the school where Dan was working at the time. And one of the many things that I did there was um, I did sexual health and relationships education. Now, some of you are looking alarmed. It's okay. We're not going there today. Um, But actually, it was an incredible privilege to go into a school from a Christian foundation and really to say that the way we figure out relationships is from a foundation of love and building healthy relationships. But one of the things that I did, which I was really tempted to do this morning and I decided not to, was I did one particular lesson. And this lesson was on sexually transmitted infection. Again, some of you are looking alarmed. It's okay. We're not going into detail. But here's what I did. I sprayed perfume on my hand. And at the beginning of the lesson, we did a little icebreaker and I would shake one person's hand, 
And then the icebreaker was they had to shake as many people's hand as they possibly could in about a minute. What happened at the end of that minute? They all sat down. What did I ask them? I asked them to smell their hand. Potentially quite a dangerous thing, particularly with 13-year-old lads, but you know, go with me with that one. And as they smelt their hands, a whole bunch of them could smell perfume on their hands. But here's the thing, I'd only shaken one of their hands. But because I'd shaken one of their hands, the smell was contagious. The smell spread right across the class. So it's a great one for making a point about sexually transmitted infections. But today, I want us just to think about the contagious nature of worship. Because that's what we see in the story today. We see a beautiful, beautiful expression of worship. And sometimes we think of worship as this really private thing. It's the thing we do by ourselves. And yet actually what Jesus is doing here is showing that worship is really powerful. Worship changes the atmosphere. And so just think about that for a little bit. Let that just linger with you. And if you don't think that aroma lingers, don't go camping with a baby because you will discover that aroma really does linger. There we go. Um, we moved house a couple of years ago. So um, we'd lived in Perry Common for a number of years and we moved up towards near Erdington Station. And um, house buying, house selling, I don't know if anyone's ever done this before, but it's a stress. And so we had all these things go wrong. We, had, um, we lost our buyer on the day in January that Boris Johnson announced another lockdown. It's like, oh, this is a pain. And I've got three kids. So uh, my eldest was 15 yesterday. Um, I've got a 12-year-old and I've got a nearly 10-year-old. I'm like authorised to say the nearly 10 bit. I can't say nine anymore. She's nearly 10. And so we'd been on this journey with our kids where we involve our kids in what's going on. We pray about things. And it was really dispiriting. And so my wife particularly got to this point of how do we get a seller for our house? And so she would come up with a new thing to make our house a little bit more desirable, a little bit more attractive. We painted walls. We bought mirrors to make things look bigger. But do you know the secret ingredient? The secret ingredient was fake flowers. Who knew? So fake flowers are, are back in. Now, some of you here, I say it politely, look as though you were alive and well in the 1970s. Okay? So I'm aware that fake flowers were a thing in the 1970s, but fake flowers are a thing now. And fake flowers can be, can be really helpful, and actually they provided some colour to our house. And I don't want to say it was all about the fake flowers, but we sold our house, and so my wife's a big fan of fake flowers now. But do you know what it did to me? Is it took me back in time. So um, I was born in the 80s, and actually I had the privilege of parents who'd given their lives to Jesus when they were teenagers, and so... I can remember being in church all my life. And I went to this little brethren church, which had a particular way of doing things in the town where I grew up. And so it had the kind of like, I remember when I was really little, it had like the hymn board with the numbers. And um, it had these little things with like ropes. They, my dad got rid of a lot of this stuff I'm quite pleased about. But I remember fake flowers. So when we bought these fake flowers, it transported me back to the mid-1980s. Now, the thing about these fake flowers that Emma had bought is that they actually were pretty cool. They looked really nice. They looked really convincing. The fake flowers at my church in the 1980s, less so. Um, these fake flowers were kind of like stuffed into these weird blocks that were sort of a little bit like spongy polystyrene. And I don't think anybody seemed to notice that they gathered dust. So I'm sure the day that those fake flowers were bought, they were bright and they were vibrant. But over time, things that are bright and are vibrant, they begin to fade. And so all I can ever think of is these really tired-looking fake flowers 
where there's convenience. So, you know, if you've got kids running around dancing in worship as they did this morning and they knock over actual flowers, you're going to spill water or soil everywhere. In this case, the block of polystyrene falls out and it's not too bad. But you know what? They were functional. They, they didn't drop leaves. They didn't need replacing. And from a distance, they looked like real flowers. And this was the scene and the stage for the way that, as a child, I collectively worshipped. But, you know, the big difference is this. They offered no fragrance. These fake flowers released no aroma. And as we read the beautiful passage from this morning, we're given this most incredible example of worship, of this woman encountering Jesus and responding to Jesus. And we're reminded that our worship cannot simply look like worship any more than fake flowers look like real flowers. But as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, our worship must give off the aroma of Christ. It must be freshly offered and it must gather no dust. When we were singing, I will offer up my life, um, part of my story is when I was actually my 13th birthday, I became really seriously ill. I ended up in a wheelchair. I was in and out of Great Ormond Street Hospital for a few years. And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. Actually, the wheelchair, I was saying to someone recently, was liberating because it suddenly meant I was mobile. But before that point, I was just stuck. And so um, I grew up in a proper Christian family. So my dad had a guitar, and he could play about five chords, and he had a rainbow strap. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to emulate my dad. I've got nothing to do. I'm going to teach myself to play guitar. And actually, that was the start of my worship journey. Because the way I taught myself guitar, we had one of these really thick songbooks, which had chord charts in the back of it. So I'd flick to the back of the big hymn book, and it showed me how to make all these shapes on a guitar to make a sound. And then I'd go to a song, and I'd figure out how to play that song. And I remember doing that with that song, I Will Offer Up My Life. And I remember playing that song, and it's a really simple song. It's got about four chords. But I remember I could just sing that. And so I could sing that now with my eyes closed, not needing to to read the words. And I think that worship was a vibrant worship. I think that worship was a fresh, colorful worship. And I wonder sometimes whether my worship's got a little bit stale and a little bit old, so I feel challenged. Let's think about the woman's offering. We um, we actually see this story um, echo in a couple of other Gospels. And we can't categorically say it's the same story, but there are such similarities that I think we can draw some parallels. So actually, I always would say to you, when we read the Bible together, let's make sure that we are looking at God's Word, but let's make sure we're going back afterwards and reading it. Let's check that there's nothing I'm saying that's not contradicting what it says in Scripture. And I'd encourage you to go a step further. There are two companion passages. You could read this in Matthew 26. You could read this in John 12. And where they agree is the costliness of this woman's offering. The Gospels record, record the value of the nard. Nard is this precious substance, this perfume. And as Jesus then points to it, it's something that was used in burials. But they record the value as 300 denarii. And the Gospel writers seem to agree that's about a year's wages. Just think about that for a second. I think Dan's probably quite clever to do the pledge thing before this talk, otherwise that could have seemed really manipulative, couldn't it? But just imagine right now giving a year's wages away. Imagine what that might do in a cost of living crisis where actually people's savings are often non-existent. Imagine what that was like to respond to Jesus 
and to give all of that away. Many have speculated that it would have been her life savings. Perhaps it might have been a dowry that could have been used as she got married. Um, There's other speculation when we read in John about her hair being let down, that perhaps this was a woman who might have been a sex worker. We don't know the story, but there is something precious about her encounter with Jesus and her response, which is giving it all away. She poured out her life savings, her pension fund. She poured out all that she possessed. There's a parallel with the widow's might, where I always love that story where there's a widow who had two coins. And Jesus looks on and sees all of these wealthy people who come and make a big show of their generosity. But the widow comes along with two coins, two really, really small coins. And she doesn't think, you know, I have nothing. I put one in because I love the Lord and I'll keep one back for myself. She puts both of the coins in. In the same way, once this woman has broken the jar, that's it. You know, she doesn't have a nice stopper to put back on the bottle. She pours it all out. What would it look like for us to pour out all of our worship? What would it look like for us to give up our reserve? What would it look like for us to give that lavish generosity that actually Jesus deserves? But more than what it was worth materially, poured out her dignity. In a society where women were so often marginalized, she was in a room that was about the men. We see that because the story says it's the home of Simon the leper. It's a society that is dominated by the male voices and the male figures. And she makes a spectacle of herself. She gives up her dignity and she releases this aroma to Christ and presents a challenge to those who witnessed it. And we read in the story, don't we, that there is anger. There's a, why didn't you do this to the poor? We see Judas's response at the end of the story. Was this the straw that broke the camel's back? Was this the tipping point where Judas was like, no more? And Judas compromises. She makes a spectacle of herself and she challenges all around. Wonder how much our worship does that. Wonder how often, like David, when it says that he became undignified and even his wife was mocking him for it. Wonder how often our worship, we make a spectacle of ourselves. We don't just pour out something that's worth something materially, but actually we're willing to give up our dignity for the sake of the Lord. And I alluded to the, the wiping of his feet with the hair. If we look in John's account, which might be the same story, actually this woman let down her hair. That's the ultimate sign in that society of a woman just saying, actually my dignity is less important than my devotion. wonder if my dignity is actually less important than my devotion. wonder if my response to the Lord I value more highly than who I am and how I'm seen by other people. It's an act of worship that's not just expensive, it's not just extravagant, it's actually scandalous. We pause for a second here. This is not about outdoing each other. It's not about showing off. It's not about some performative expression of worship where we're trying to kind of appear very dramatic. But it is about giving ourselves entirely to the Lord. And again, I think that story of the widow illustrates that really, really beautifully. And Jesus delights in that offering. So back to the story, the response of those in the room. What a waste. That's the response. There's a German pastor called Johannes Hartel, and uh, he describes this story so well as it's a story of beautiful waste. And he says, was it necessary that this woman poured out the perfume? No, it wasn't necessary. 
didn't need to do it. There was a custom of washing feet. But she went so much further. Was it necessary? No. Was it a waste? Yes. But it was a beautiful waste. And I think that describes it so well. And imagine this. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, people will tell of what this woman poured out. I find that so humbling. Just imagine that. Imagine Jesus saying of you, wherever the gospel is preached, actually, he will describe, Kenny, he'll describe your worship to the Lord. Mickey, he'll describe your worship to the Lord. What an incredible thing. And not for the sake of their glory, because this woman gets it. It's not about her. She gets that the story is about Jesus, and that's why it's so pure. And just as this woman poured out her offering, Jesus would soon pour out his. There's a parallel pouring. This is not a story of one jar, but it's a story of two jars. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we end up segmenting the Bible. If you read, and I love reading the Bible on a phone or on a tablet, but sometimes when we do that, we select the passage and we don't see the broader picture. So this story happens in the week before Jesus died. Sometimes when we're even flicking pages, like, well, it's detached from the page that follows, but this story happens in a context. And it happens in a context where Jesus is about to be crucified. And it's worth just thinking about the era that Jesus lived in. So um, I'm not going to shame some of you by asking who had a shower this morning, who changed their socks this morning. But in the age where Jesus was, they didn't have kind of hot power showers, didn't have nice radox kind of foot scrubs and things like that. Um, and, and actually probably, I hate to break it to you, they probably didn't have socks. They had sandals. And they would, with those sandals, they would walk dusty streets. And those dusty streets wouldn't just be pedestrian dusty streets. They would be donkey dusty streets. They would be oxen dusty streets. And you can imagine the type of substance that would be on those dusty streets. And so Jesus would have walked those dusty streets, which is why that practice of foot washing was so important. But if you know the bigger picture, you know that there's another meal that happens a couple of days later. And it's the meal that we come to know as the Last Supper. And there is something quite distinctive about the Last Supper because Jesus turns convention on its head. You see, in that society, the least important person in the room would wash the feet of all of the others. And yet Jesus was the most important person in that room. But it was Jesus that washed the feet of those who were there. So it's not too big a narrative jump to wonder whether a couple of days later Jesus' feet hadn't been washed. And so do you know what happens when you pour out a really expensive perfume? And this is really expensive perfume. This is not kind of your Tesco value perfume. It's almost like if you imagine a cheese where you've got your extra mature cheese and it gives off an aroma that's different from your baby bell. It's a little bit like this. This is expensive, fragrant perfume. And she's poured it all out. There would have been a stench in that room. And that stench would have clung to Jesus' feet. So that I think we could probably assume that two days later, his feet would still smell of it. And I think we could probably go further and assume that actually not just in the Last Supper, but actually at the crucifixion, Jesus' feet would still smell of it. Verse 8 says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Those are the words of Jesus. She did what she could poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. The nard would have been used to prepare a body for burial. This is not just an act of worship in the moment. 
but this is a prophetic act. As Jesus breathed his last, perhaps the last smell he would have taken in would have been the fragrance of this beautiful waste, the fragrance of this woman's worship. Breaks the jar, he pours it all out. The aroma of worship was inflammatory, and it provoked anger in those around her. And so even if you're kind of thinking, well, that's a little bit of a jump, you know, at a minimum, if we take Jesus' words literally, he wants us to link this beautiful waste, this anointing, this outpouring of worship with his death. And I think that that's a challenge to us in how we respond to the Lord. But the second jar, that's the first jar, and the jar is of worship. The second jar is of salvation. Because just as we say this is part of a bigger story that demands a response from us in worship, for some of us, it's part of a bigger story that is an invitation to us of salvation. Because there is a perfume that's more precious than this precious nard. And that perfume is the life of Jesus. And the jar is the body of Jesus. And so we go on to see that the body of Jesus was broken. And just as the perfume was poured out, so the life of Jesus was poured out. And it's the most precious fragrance of all time. It contains a blameless life. And as we've sung this morning, a blameless life that is poured out for us. Poured out for us. It's poured out for you and for you and for you. It's poured out for us. Jesus poured out his body for us. In the same way that the woman extravagantly poured out her devotion to Jesus, Jesus pours out his love for us. And he offers us new life. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us salvation. And so I want to ask us some questions this morning. And one of the joys of being amongst friends but not knowing all of you is I don't know your story. I don't know where each of you are at. And so let's start with the jar of salvation. Have we truly grasped that Jesus' body was broken for us? Not for other people, not for like the collective, but actually for each of you. Have you grasped that Jesus' body was broken for you? He died for you to offer you full relationship with him, total forgiveness. And if that's a new message, then take the example of the woman who didn't wait for the opportune time to express her love for God. She did it in the least convenient time, the most exposing time. And so maybe that time for you is this morning. And so I know that there's an amazing team of people who love Jesus here. And so hopefully you've got to know some of them but, you know, if not, come and talk to Sue, come talk to Kenny, come talk to Nikki, come talk to Dan, come talk to Amy. And maybe just share where you're at and they could pray with you. There's one response. But for a whole bunch of the rest of us, we know this message. We've heard it again and again and again. And I wonder if it's become a little bit like those plastic flowers. I wonder if it's become faded. And the shocking nature of it has just got a little bit lost. I think that Jesus is inviting us to encounter the depth, the starkness of that message again, the jar of worship. And the question is this, how much does our worship cost us? We sing these words, don't we, about how Jesus is worth it all. But is it just a song? Are they just lyrics that we sing when they appear on a screen, or are we living that out? How much does it cost us? What do we sensibly hold back? You know, sometimes as, as British people, we can be quite reserved, can't we? That's a good catch, Ben. 
nearly dropped the Bible. Love the reflexes. We, we get very reserved. We get quite contained. I wonder what actually provokes us to step away from our reserve. Um, I, I've had a mixed emotions around football in the last couple of weeks. So I grew up in the home counties in the 1980s, so I hope you forgive me for being a Liverpool fan. Um, and so Liverpool had a big win last week, and I was exuberant. It was amazing. And then Liverpool lost yesterday to Bournemouth in this just damp squib of a 1-0 loss. And so actually sport for me can draw out big emotions. Um, that might not be it for you. Um, I love really good food. And um, one of the great things about where I work now is this amazing coffee shop's just opened up underneath us, and they have the most spectacular cakes. And when I obviously do my due research, because it's important to understand our surroundings, and I eat one of those lovely cakes, it stirs up a response in me. It's incredible. Maybe some of you are parents. Imagine that feeling, that look of delight when you look into the eyes of a child. And actually, the opposite is true, where some of us have experienced loss and the depth of emotion we feel in that loss. I wonder how much that resonates with the way that we feel and express our emotions towards Jesus. Maybe some of you are video game junkies or you're kind of big into the family board game and there's that moment of deep competition where either you win or you lose. What's the emotion that is elicited from you there? Maybe there are those moments where we step out of our reserve and Jesus is inviting you to step a whole heap more out of your reserve. And again, let me qualify it. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about being performative. But actually, if Jesus is worth it all, he is worth it all. If we can read a story in the Old Testament of a king, the most important person in that society, who would totally give up his dignity for the sake of the Lord, then how much more should that be true of us? John Tyson is a pastor in New York City, and um, he wrote a book called Beautiful Resistance. And he wrote this. As we approach God, his primary concern is the devotion of our hearts, not our performance out of duty. It's incredibly easy to have something take over our hearts, to make its way into first place without even knowing it. We can keep up involvement in our small groups, attend church faithfully, give generously and love seriously while holding on to something other than God as sacred in our hearts. That's why God always looks first at our hearts rather than our religious habits. Something taken first place in our hearts before the Lord. Just something to consider. Consider it this morning, but maybe go away over the course of this week. Just ask if something got in the way of Jesus being first place in our hearts. Because here's the invitation. Our world is in desperate need of hope, isn't it? When we look around us, what I tend to see is cynicism and disappointment. I see shame. I see rejection. I look into the eyes of Jordan all those years ago that I described, and I see a story of rejection and loneliness of people that give up on him. We could put on a performance of worship, and that won't do it, because what the world is looking for, what the world's waiting for, even if it doesn't realize it, is the fragrance of hope, is the fragrance of life, and it won't be released if our worship, if our rightful and reasonable response, as it says in the book of Romans, is restrained and contained within ourselves. We can put on a performance of worship. We can adopt the posture of worship. So we could either be restrained or we could put on a show. We can sing the songs of worship, but they just become like fake flowers that don't give off any fragrance, don't give off 
any aroma. Or we can be challenged by a simple woman that lived 2,000 years ago who understood who Jesus was. Understood who Jesus was and that determined her response to him so that she understood what worship is. She surrendered her heart. She surrendered her resources. She surrendered her dignity in worship. And the beautiful thing about this story is that the worship, the devotion, the expression of one Mary filled the room. Filled the room with fragrance. It challenged everybody who was there. The fragrance of her worship changed the atmosphere. Psalm 63 says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Think about how this relates to the way we express our worship. Because your love is better than life. Do we know that? Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. As Dan just uh, comes back up, here's my closing question to you. Are we ready to join this woman in releasing the aroma of Christ and filling the whole world with his fragrance? The invitation to see the jar of salvation of Jesus' broken body and to see the jar of worship of this alabaster jar of priceless nard that's released. Are we ready to participate in that story and take our place?